1: Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. I have Zach with me today. Zach, who is our guest.
0: Well, today we're welcoming back historian, blogger, YouTuber, and to be honest, just all round good guy, Josh Proven, as we talk about the rise and the fall of the Iroquois. And if we don't somehow shun in some comments about The Last of the Mohicans, then I'm going to be honest with you, Alex, we're just doing a crap job.
1: Yeah, but it wouldn't be the first time. Um, <laughs> But I'm pretty sure Josh is only here because he's collecting cartoons of himself, anyway. So.
2: <laughs> well, my fa- my family is <laughs> yeah. I don't know about myself. <laughs> I do. This is this this is the this is the not so secret secret of, of how you pull people into this show. To be honest, we all come for the we all come for the caricatures. This is true. It's genius. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, marketing-wise, you you knocked out of the park with this one. I mean it's well done it's well done this is this is this is the high level strategy, yeah, high level high
1: strategy, strategy. uh today i've just been sent one of me in the most politically incorrect historically inaccurate um heathen costume for the first crusade which is what i asked for to be fair i love it it's brilliant
2: i, I, I think i may have seen it yes it's <laughs> in <awesome>. the group.
1: <laughs> anyway We're here because Josh likes to move around the world with us and bring Mm. us bits of history um, that we wouldn't otherwise look at. Uh, We're still waiting for someone to come forward and fund our fact-finding pronunciation mission to Hawaii. Uh, No one's offered any money yet, um, but Zach's having a shit week as well. And so um, if you could pay for Zach to come... Uh, yeah, then yeah. obviously, the historical accuracy of Polynesia would thank you, and so would Zach.
0: Absolutely, if somebody wants to chuck me, you know, a few thousand pounds to do research, I'm I'm up for it. I'm not cheap, but you know, <laughs>
1: <laughs> see that so that's a real <laughs> job, and we really don't want to do that.
2: This is necessary research. Remember, uh, you know, for, you know, patrons who are listening, Hawaii, this in Hawaii, it needs to be it needs to be done. No one else Definitely is doing it. Does. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> but today you're taking us somewhere else we're staying uh, in the western hemisphere a lot mm. of our listeners will be aware of the Iroquois interactions with European settlers in the 17th 18th 19th centuries because of Daniel Day Lewis and other things but where <laughs> do they come from geographically and historically who are these people
2: well it's my pleasure to try and tell you about them and raise the ire of the the modern-day nations, if they happen to be listening at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, well done, by the way, getting Daniel Day-Lewis in there right off the bat. Yep. You don't need to. You're doing your job properly. I mean, drinking I,
1: game for yeah. anyone. If, mm-hmm. Every time we mention Last of the Mohicans, you
2: get to drink. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I, I've, heard, I've heard that podcasters who, who don't include a minimum of relatable and intellectually comforting pop culture references to other people's intellectual property do get fined and publicly shamed. I, I, I do think that's a thing now.
1: 100%.
2: But, so, who, who are the Iroquois? Where do they come from? Well, to answer, um, to answer both in the broadest and most unsatisfyingly general way possible, um, I'd have to say that Iroquois uh, are a collection of uh, five and later six tribes who shared a common root language and matrilineal uh, culture distinct from other language groups who lived in present day Northeastern USA and Canada. Um, Geographically, these initial five tribes, the Onida, Mohawk, Cayuga, Seneca and Onondaga lived more or less contiguously with each other in uh, in a corridor of land between Lake Ontario and the line of Lake Champlain and the Hudson River Valley. Uh, research into the early history of um, uh, of the region suggests uh, an initial uh, connection to the Algonquin peoples and uh, Jesuit histories tell that the originators of the five tribes actually um, came from what is now Canada in the region of uh, what the French call Montréal, uh, see if you can guess where that is in Anglophone, and uh, were driven south after an unsuccessful war. The name, coincidentally uh, with Montréal, is, is is entirely French and derived from a foggy um, understanding of um, uh, a vague word used by uh, the Algonquins to describe them and may even mean something like snake or something like that. Uh, but there's various various sort of explanations as to what it it's derived from. Uh, but European phonetic renderings of indigenous languages is is really common in popular names of most American Indian tribes. The Iroquois called themselves the um, uh, you know to for themselves they called themselves the Hodenosaunee or the people of the longhouse.
0: So initially, these people they're quite warlike but they quite literally end up burying the hatchet. And I mean that in the literal sense. This is where the term burying the hatchet comes from. And until I was researching the question, I didn't even know that. So talk us through the story of how these tribes kind of set aside their differences and become a union. Because it all starts, I was reading, with the Tears of Hiawatha.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, or at least that's where I always like to start when I I tell the story. Um, So... Uh, Around 1450, though some say it happened as early as the 1100s, the Iroquoian nations that had settled along the southern shores of the Great Lakes were uh, locked in a a self-perpetuating cycle of raid and counter-raid and low-level warfare. A common byproduct of the rivalry amongst the tribes of the area was the concept of a mourning war, where loved ones killed or captured in battle uh, could be could be avenged um, replaced even by a captive or corpse of, of an enemy nation. Um, The casualty, I I mean, a a major casualty of these times and this specific, probably this specific instance um, was a man named um, Hiawatha, which, you know, is pronounced generally as Hiawatha. Um, And he later became, famous in American folklore due to the publication of the Song of Hiawatha by Henry Wordsworth Longfellow. Um, Hiawatha was um, a real man though, and he was descended from the Onondaga people, but became a Mohawk leader. And he was renowned for his eloquence uh, and his wisdom. And he had come to believe in the teachings of a Huron mystic named Tikanawida, who preached a message of, of togetherness and peace, and the power that could be derived from that. Um, because, uh, and because um, Tikanawida apparently had a, a speech impediment, or at least um, he wasn't as eloquent as he was divinely inspired, Hiawatha would uh, often speak for him. Uh, the great law of, of, of peace and power, as it was called, uh, preached by Tikanawida and his disciples, however, was despised by many, such as the warlike and sinister Tadodaho of the Onondaga, whose whose worst impulses uh, were egged on by a cruel physical deformity that left him in constant pain and uh, embitterment. Uh, Taradaho was a specter of fear amongst the Iroquois. Um, His hair was matted and tangled, and, and legend said that snakes grew in it. It was also said that he had the power to kill from a great distance without seeing his enemy. Amongst all the tribes, he was the most uh, powerful and feared, and although um, the Mohawk, Seneca, Oneida, and Cayuga were willing to accept the great law, Tadadaho refused, and his refusal was costly to Hiawatha in unimaginable ways. Um, uh, three times a grand council was attempted, and each time Tadadaho quashed it, um, and deliberately thereafter, or uh, in, in the course of, um, targeted Hiawatha as Diganawida's living tongue, as it were, killing all three of his daughters um, by either magic or assassination. I'm not actually quite sure the specifics of it, but um, he did this unspeakable evil. Um, now, the significance of this is very important, I think. Hiawatha was a man of peace, and he helped to preach that vengeance wasn't the way. He was but, however entitled to take vengeance on the man who had killed his daughters and indeed replace them with captives under you know contemporary uh, sort of sensibilities um so if Taradaho could push hiawatha to vengeance then diganawida's great law could you know could crumble i mean the, the whole reason behind it if you take out his most trusted trusted disciple uh, you know, it's just not. It's just a really effective way of trying to pierce to the heart of something you just didn't didn't want to get on board with. Mm. However, um, the leader was was wise though, and he and he knows and he nursed and coached his friend through these dark times uh, by the shores of Lake Onondaga, teaching him special rites to enact that would help him process his grief, cleanse his soul, and and come back to some sort of humanity or something like that how he did that i mean this is this is like sort of unspeakable pain the poor guy was in but somehow he managed it and so the tears of her water i feel symbolically take the place of the spilled blood um and the team continued their work uh, and but they knew that unless taladaho could be persuaded and they need and again they could have killed him and just got him out of the way but they, they wanted to actually persuade him change his mind Uh, so but you know (laughs) this guy's going to be a a tough a tough negotiation i think uh by any stretch of the word because he just wouldn't listen to anybody and he was just determined to maintain his his power base through raiding and fear and whatever magic he had on his side so what did they do how did they how did they get to him at, uh, at last. Well, there was a woman who lived on a, a very popular war path or one of the main war paths, in quotes, um, of, the, of the region. And uh, her, her, her house was a place where warriors of any nation could find hospitality. And uh, she gained an invaluable insight into all manners of affairs as a result of this. She was known as uh, Jikon Uh, which, uh, to be honest, has several interpretations depending on how old the the source is. Um, But she's most commonly known as the mother of nations. And Jikonsase um, advised the great peacemaker uh, how to win uh, Tadadaho to the cause. Through her efforts, a meeting was arranged and Tadadaho consented to let the Kanawideh and Hiawatha enact special sort of ceremonies you know, uh, to, over him. Um, so special ointments and healing ceremonies were used to soothe the pain in his bones and joints, and then Hiawatha solemnly combed his hair smooth. Now, think about that. That's, that, that's a moment right there. I mean, <laughs> Hiawatha is combing Taladaho's hair, the man who, who killed his daughters is literally at his mercy. Can you imagine how much he must have wanted to strangle them? <laughs> I'm just right
1: looking there. at your hair and thinking, oh, I can imagine Zach combing your bones. Yeah.
0: <laughs> See, what I'm thinking about is the nightmare, because you were saying that this guy basically had a rat's nest for a hair yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> so, how long must that have taken? So, not only have you got to resist the impulse to throttle the guy, it's going he's to take in, yeah. all day, <laughs> and I'm just wondering: does he kind of, when he gets to a really knotty bit, does he just give it a really good yank? Yeah, <laughs> like kind of cathartic yeah. way of getting over the, the whole kind yeah. of agony that he's in. I think. there's probably. something
1: distinctly unmanly if the other guy squeals, so he might <laughs> yeah. like bite his tongue.
2: <laughs> but it's very uh,
1: symbolic. This story, I love it. Yeah,
2: uh, but it, I mean, it it, it it um apparently it works. You know, once he's freed of his pain, uh, he encounters some sort of uh, uh, catharsis or something like that that occurs in Tadadaho. And he suddenly accepts the great peace that the Ganawida is offering, probably sweetened by the fact that the Ganawida allows him to remain as the most powerful chief of the league. Uh, he He is known as the fire keeper and, Iroquois national sort of politics would forever rest on Onondaga um, as a result uh, of him accepting the the great peace or the great law, sometimes it was called. He's sort of the spokesperson there for the rest of his life. And actually subsequent, in quotes, fire keepers were actually called the ritual name Taradaho, um because he was the first. Um, so a great council is then held in which the war hatchet is ceremonially buried in the earth. Uh, five arrows are lashed together as a symbol of unity. A grand longhouse is constructed at Onondaga and a magnificent white pine planted as a, re, uh, as a symbol of the strength of, of the great peace. Um, and if anybody is, is um, sort of aware of the, the heraldic nature of the United States um, crest, then you'll notice the eagle, which is also a, a symbol of the Iroquois. Is holding, um, is holding a, a, a lashed together uh, arrows in one of its talons. See,
0: there's there's a lot of symbolism in this creation story, isn't there? You've got the bearing of the hatchet, the binding of the arrows, planting the great white pine. Why is this creation story kind of so philosophical? Because it goes back to what Alex is saying about all of the symbolism here. Is it just the
1: nature of it? Is, yeah, that what we, is that what we're seeing here, the nature of passing things down by word of mouth?
2: Yeah, I mean, is this kind of Chinese whispers in action? Hmm. Well, I mean, there's probably an element to it, because obviously all of these stories, although they refer to real people, were passed down by word of mouth and then told as, um, as form, formulaic kind of stories around campfires and stuff. To, to uh, th- from that time down to the, the fall of the Iroquois and to this day, to be honest, um, although as I say, each of the four main characters do seem semi-mythical, and so this is due to that oral tradition. Uh, they were real people. Um, there's no reason to dis- to to not believe that they have some actual. There is there were actual people who who formed the Iroquois nation together and there were probably rough. There's probably grains of truth at the heart of all of them. Um, and it's quite common as well in this part of North America to find holy men, um, uh, at various important times in history, trying to unite, um, the various nations, um, to, to sort of gather strength. So that's, that's a big thing. Um, of course, certain things probably did get embellished over time. Uh, But the core meaning of the story in its various forms is always the triumph of peace and togetherness. The Kanoide, or the great peacemaker, is holy man. In this case, uh, as with many divinely inspired figures in history, um, politics and economics, which are are like a a significant factor in the unification, does take second place to... um, uh, this philosophical message. Uh, for a start, the improvement of bulk crops like grain and corn was, was vital to the economic viability of the experiment. The Iroquois weren't friendly to everybody either. Um, once they were unified, they were in a very strong position to pool collective resources, um, absorb other tribes, crush enemies, and in fact, although they were now tied together as allies, um, the five nations all still sought. Uh, they all sort of still did their own thing to an extent. Um, It's just they didn't fight each other anymore and they acted as a unit to support the other in in external matters if it was a serious deal. Um, But even even in that, um, Onondaga didn't dictate to all because in 1749, there's a great quote by a British observer who said that, and quote, such was the abs absolute notions of liberty that they would allow no kind of superiority one over the other and banish all servitude from their ter- territories quote um so the ritualistic nature of the story became embedded in the culture and and ceremony of the league basically how do they communicate this is it literally just
0: you know fireside chats over the course of time is it kind of encapsulated in song do they have kind of Ritual days and, and ceremonies. How's it done?
2: I'm unsure as to if there are if there were historically specific days on which um, the sort of like a founding day of the Iroquois. Um, I don't know whether that was a thing. But for certain, um, uh, the like uh, Hiawatha, the and the tikanawida would be celebrated in songs and dances and remembered on significant uh sort of religious festivals and things like that i'm absolutely sure uh and also again uh, just told around the lo- the fires- firesides in the long houses as the story of the iroquois
1: how does the peace that follows impact on the everyday lives of the iroquois people
2: uh okay uh Always, 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 always easy questions. Yeah. I'm um, but... <laughs> like
1: to give you like an essay question that would usually require a couple of months of solid reading of sorting. But yeah, I'm just going to chuck it at you because it's fun. Uh,
2: I, will, I will do my best to bat it back. Uh, <laughs> so at a social level, uh, I will say that the Confederacy works, as I said, mentioned before, on a matrilineal system. So basically the women own most of the property, even after marriage. Yes. The clan matrons of the tribes also have the last word in most disputes and a very strong uh, voice in political decisions. It's uh, difficult to, um, uh, it's difficult to, well, it's it's common to underestimate how much political power these women had. Um, Militarily speaking, the Confederacy is also able to expand and dominate the area below the Great Lakes and along the Hudson and Ohio valleys. Um, wampum belts or hiawata belts uh, as they were sometimes known became a highly important symbolic tool of communication and diplomacy this also ties into the founding legend because uh, wampum shells uh, strung into uh, strands and then into uh, wider belt more decorative belts were a tool that the theganoweda had used to, um, to to spread his his message, and they were highly symbolic to him and to the Iroquois thereafter as a result um, one these they were now and they became a symbolic tool of communication diplomacy uh, thereafter uh, in like in the in the eighth century and a half well the, all the centuries that followed for the Iroquois, to be honest, and actually many tribes not um within the Iroquois Confederacy also used this this method. Um uh, these were at first made out of freshwater shells, a very beautiful collect a very, very beautiful um when they're all strung together, the little tiny, tiny little shells, uh pure uh pale white. And um later on they would um they would uh, They would make patterns out of the slightly discolored ones and and make pictures out of them. And later on, uh, this changed uh, when uh, European trade became more prevalent, that the wampum belts were more colorful and could actually include uh, either painted shells or, as was very, very common later on, uh, beads, beadwork. but generally speaking, these, they, so if you wanted to make peace, you pass the peace belt. If you want to just give it as a gift, as a ma- as a matter of regard, that's how you do sort of into diplomacy. And if you if you want to go to war, you you, part, you the the war belt is passed around the six nations, and it means you have to go to Onondaga to figure out who we're going to fit, who we're going to fight. So, okay,
1: so I like that you decide to go to war before you decide who you're going to fight.
2: <laughs> well, presumably there's a target in mind, but you have to talk to other people about it first. <laughs> who knows? Uh, maybe it was just random. We you know we have we have to go to war with someone this year. It's part of the quota. I don't know. <laughs> but um, so all of this is to say that, like I said. They pulled their resources together, made them very powerful in the in the local uh, in their local area, which is sort of around modern-day New York, Pennsylvania, Great Lakes area. And um, their dominant position obviously meant that for ordinary people, uh, this was a time of, of fairly uh, decent living, uh, I would say. Um, in the although they were set up in in terms. Sort of ag- agricultural terms to to for, yeah pretty well set up agriculturally. Uh, the territories that came to dominate in the seventeenth by the time of the seventeenth century were a fertile resource for pelts. Now in the late sixteen hundreds, Europeans have founded permanent settlements along the coast: New England and Virginia, the Carolinas. Um, the French uh, influence centered along the Saint Lawrence at Montreal. Uh, French explorers uh, like La Vie and Champlain had been amongst the first to make contact with the Iroquois, um, uh, with rather mixed results, uh, and the legacy of this is, is that the French and the Iroquois became pretty embittered enemies um, as the French began supporting their traditional foes of the Iroquois, who in turn disliked the Iroquois because of their expansionist nature and wanted to team up with the French to try and stop them. Um, A bitter series of wars erupted through the entire 17th century, uh, and this was ostensibly tied to gaining control of the pelt-rich regions along the Canadian border and around the Great Lakes, known as the Beaver Wars. And uh, this eventually sees French power quite firmly established and a turning point has come to the Confederacy. Uh, But the power of Traditional enemies such as the Huron Confederacy has been badly crippled. So it was actually more of a stalemate sort of thing going on. But it would be fair to say that for the Iroquois, the the in quotes Pax Iroquois um, between 1450 and 1600 were flourishing times for, for your average member of the of the Confederacy.
0: So the Europeans pitch up. You know, the the Iroquois are busily minding their own business, getting on with their own affairs. Along come the Europeans and think, look, there's some money to be made here. We're going to stick our noses in because the Europeans do love to do that sometimes. What do they make, first of all, of the the Iroquois, where you have such a strong matriarchal influence? Because Western European society is so strongly patriarchal. It must have been a bit of a culture shock for them. You know, what, the women are in
2: charge? Surely not.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love it, though. Could you imagine? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah they are. Guy. And they've got, they've got like battle axes and stuff. So deal with <laughs> it.
2: Yeah. Um, well, to be to, to first of all, I don't understand. They don't they don't recognize it. Um, it. It goes over their heads. They don't because it's also quite a subtle thing. The women don't go out to do the diploma, diplomacy and stuff like that. They'll use chiefs and stuff to do that, uh, um, unless unless the woman is particularly uh, renowned, in which case she'll go herself. But even then, I think that would be taken as a, a very extreme measure because it would be seen undignified. I guess. Um, for the Iroquois to actually send their most important political decision makers to, as if they were message boys. And so the, the, the clan matrons of the various uh, nations tended to keep their own council. And because, because as you were saying, as the nature of of the way Europeans thought, they didn't really actively ever go to talk with the, with the the, women, the 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 policy makers amongst the women of the Iroquois. Uh, This was missed entirely. And only a few people who actually, you know, pardon my French, gave a damn about actual Indian affairs um, knew about this. Uh, And as a result, unfortunately, because the way, obviously, uh, the the way the Iroquois society worked was the women did their thing, the men did their thing. And Twain did meet generally speaking, you didn't actually deliberately had to ask one or the other to get their opinion on it. And they wouldn't just say, they wouldn't just say, well, go ask the women sort of thing like that. Or go ask the men. Uh, it would, ethnographers and historians from the Europeans missed this point. And generally speaking, it led to a great amount of confusion because obviously a whole element of Iroquois decision making was lost uh, on a lot of people except the most dedicated um, the most dedicated sort of, uh, I guess, Indian agency, you'd call them, from the French and the British. Um, and it's just a the thing, the, the, the Iroquois and Cherokee and other matrilineal societies all along the East Coast all, all had this, this in their society uh, where they would always include the women in decisions and mostly, generally speaking, the women would tell them what to do. Um, and they would have to enact it, 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 it just this uh, like I say it was, I think it was completely missed by the majority of of, of governors and and stuff in the colonies and so that 's a flaw a, a major flaw in dealing with the Iroquois so it just it, the simple answer is confusion arose
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: and you were talking
2: about the French mm-hmm. and how they.
0: Kind look at that into...
1: some french bashing you know yes. <laughs> right in. In yeah. look
0: i tried to kind of tie it up neatly with some kind of precursor marcus
1: but... wouldn't even have done the bridge he would have just gone so the french <laughs>
0: <laughs> i'm trying <laughs> to make a semblance of being nice go, to on, french, let,
1: let, go on i'll let you do it let's style it out i want to see where this is going we're gonna
0: edit it out anyway let's be <laughs> honest
1: <laughs> i've really not now because this is funny go on
0: so the french I'm reluctant to say they get suckered into fighting against the Iroquois, but do they basically get suckered into fighting against the Iroquois because they get pally with the Iroquois' enemies first? Is it just like you know they come in thinking that they're going to play this great game and actually they get used as a pawn within the broader kind of geopolitical shenanigans that are going on between the tribes at this point?
2: Well, we could, uh, I, I'm sure that we'll get into uh, how how the Iroquois managed to kind of stay afloat during the the rivalry between the Europeans. But the French position uh, is a curious one, actually, um, because they send, they don't actually send like massive sort of teams of people to set up colonies. At first, they send out like small expeditions led by one guy and they map ridiculous amounts of swathes of, of North America. The early clashes they have with the Iroquois, and this is and the reason, I mean, the Iroquois is a French name for a reason, because they're the first people to report it on them. Um, does, I think, colour French, the French stunts in North America? Because... As far as the Iroquois are concerned, the French are sort of like a kind of a. I want to say they treated them a little like a tribe of North America, a nation within North America, and then the French were relatively happy for this to be the case. And as a result, they teamed up with everybody that the um, the Iroquois had you know ticked off. Um, and at first, as in there's actually a lot of cases with European interference in North America it can be argued that it's not necessarily the Europeans taking advantage of, of the native American sort of situation to destroy their enemies. It's actually a bit of both where you have smaller confederacies who are being bullied by the Iroquois, basically saying um, let's team up and, and, and show these guys where to go. Unfortunately that drives the Iroquois into the arms of the Dutch and the English And already you're getting kind of who sides are being drawn for future conflicts.
1: So in terms of we talked about economical and political and how they impact, but there's a there's a physical impact, isn't there? So they're bringing diseases that Native Americans haven't got any immunity to and sicknesses. Um, And also we bring them alcohol as well. And it royally screws with them. How accurate is that assumption?
2: Obviously, the impact uh, of the Europeans on on the nations of the Americas is a big subject. Um, uh, again, thanks for the easy questions.
1: Right, okay, uh, it's just the Iroquois, <laughs> just the Iroquois. Do we make them all drunkards, and do we give them
2: all <laughs> I'll try and give you a nuanced answer, okay. okay.
0: <laughs> Good luck with that. Uh,
2: yeah. Um, <laughs> So specifically for the Iroquois, the introduction of, of, like I say, new political players complicates matters and for the most part halts their expansion. In 1722, you do get the Tuscarora Nation um, inducted into the Confederacy. We have to point that out. So it becomes uh, the Six Nations, um, which is what they're known as today. Um, However, the Iroquois realized that the Europeans, uh, as you touched on before, Zach, relatively easy to manipulate. And despite being eventually, uh, you know, despite eventually making peace with much stronger and t- more trade hungry France through the late 17th century and up to the 18th century, uh, they successfully managed to maintain their power base by playing the British off against the French. Um, the Iroquois were able to survive war with the French because the French had a more sophisticated policy when it came to Indian affairs. And again, that's because of trade. Um, the lifeblood of New France was the fur trade. And for this, they needed to cultivate allies. And as I said before, that worked out pretty well because the Iroquois had made a lot of people angry. Um, uh, land wasn't necessarily their primary objective. They tended to build forts rather than settlements unlike the very populous uh, English colonies along, with, uh, you know, which became the United States. So this allowed the Confederacy to survive after military failures against the French King, who, you know, for your information, was known in America as an on which I think is something like Great Father or something like that. So for the example, they would begin by being friendly to both the British and the French. Diplomatic missions actually traveled to London to meet King George and other other people. And um, when asked to go raiding for one side or the other during outbreaks of European wars, they would delay for various reasons, then send word to the opposition of the plan and hopefully kill it dead so they didn't have to go and fight anybody. This (laughs) isn't to say that various nations within the League always stayed neutral. There were, for instance, a branch of the Mohawks, the bulk of whom were usually pro-British, who preferred the French. But this adept manipulation of European rivalries ended in 1755, which we'll get to uh, uh, next, I think. (laughs) But... um, so, but it wasn't necessarily just, just sort of the presence of Europeans that caused the problems. Uh, in terms of alteration of society due to the sort of introdu- introduction of European diseases and alcohol, this is absolutely has its role to play. Um, disease um, now should be added to the list of, of reasons many tribes begin to disappear. Well, you yeah, know, it has before, but in this part of in this part of the country again you're looking at um disease now being added to the list of many local tribes that the iroquois had been in touch with for a long time beginning to disappear and indeed the iroquois would sometimes uh, actually take advantage of tribes weakened by disease um, and alcoholism Uh, and actually alcoholism like you say was a problem and uh, as an example we can go to the great orator and war chief um who uh whose name was uh, Red Jacket in English. Um, uh, And he described the results of his struggle here. Um, He said that, uh, quote, Red Jacket was once a great man and in favor with the great spirit. He was a lofty pine amongst the smaller trees of the forest. But after years of glory, he degraded himself by drinking the fire water of the white man. The great spirit has looked upon him in anger, and his lightning has stripped the pine of its branches. And I think this is a somewhat common story. It's a stereotype, however, to think that everybody just became uh, drunkards and many did not um, Mm. do so. But it, it was a problem. Uh, even for great leaders amongst, amongst the League. Um, but ma- many coastal tribes had certainly already paid enormous price in terms of the population and land by 1750. The Iroquois had to some extent avoided it because of the geographic location of where they were. Um, more importantly, the tribes of the Great Lakes being removed from large centres of European settlement were being affected uh, as well by, by Protestant and Jesuit missionaries and trade goods centuries as metal tools, uh, European textiles, guns, and by the time of the French and Indian War, one writer said that it was almost impossible to find a piece of native manufacture um, that, that wasn't made from, from some sort of European materials. Uh, even the wampum belts, as I said before, that the Iroquois had been using as a means of, uh, of diplomatic and communication for centuries were now mostly made of, of, of trade beads. And and not freshwater shells as in the time of the Awaka. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading
0: telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. Do to some extent bring them booze. Yeah, if they're not drinking booze, what are they drinking? Because the whole point about why booze really takes off in Western European society, if I have got this right, is because they can't trust the water quality. Mm. So, how are they getting around that? I mean, problem? I would
2: love to answer that question for you, Zach, but to answer <laughs> to you, I don't actually know.
1: <laughs> I don't think they've got a problem with the water. Um, no, I don't think. I don't think it's not like in London. Yeah, the water was so disgusting yeah. that you drank beer. But I don't think that iroquois have got that problem.
2: I would tend to agree. Uh, I'm. I'm. I think that there w- there was brewed from wa- the water sources that they had, diff- uh, possibly a different kind of drink. Yeah, uh, and possibly connected with corn. I'm not quite sure precisely. I have a hazy memory of something like this, but I would I would not want to give listeners some sort of idea that I know. We'd be better off
1: sitting here discussing how to make time travel happen, because no one would ever answer that question.
2: <laughs> brilliant question as it is.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's like, brilliant question as it is. It's not on the list, arseholes, it's <laughs> on the list. Right, okay, uh, Zach, I'll let you do the next question, because it's about the French.
0: So, the Iroquois, as you've said, are able to play the British and the French off against each other until 1754, when we get the French and Indian Wars, which is, for folks who don't know, part of this, the wider Seven Years' War. And then, as everybody knows, Daniel Day Lewis comes right. along, stars <laughs> in Last of the Mohicans, except that it's not like that at all. So, what's the historical reality of what happens during the conflict?
2: Right, and well, please uh, don't
1: crush my hope that that bit was real, where they ripped his heart out of his body and ate it. That <laughs>
2: oh, oh, that was a thing. Uh, yeah. sure, that was a thing. I mean, what I didn't mention before, actually, what, what was kind of what I what I should mention is that back in the old days, when the Great Peace was introdu- introduced, cannibalism was a thing, hmm. and the Ganoida was one of the people who said, actually, that's not a really cool thing to do. We should stop that, and that was one of the things the Iroquois stopped doing uh, after the Great Peace occurred but yeah it was it could be a thing to to cut out the heart of your opponent and 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 boil it and eat it It, uh also as a form of just a just a downright form of torture there's apparently one british soldier during this war who was captured who saw who saw some rather grisly things regarding the 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 biology of his of his fellow captors uh, um who were captured by by various french allied tribes But anyway, at first the Iroquois attempted to uh, establish. Well, as you may have gathered from what I said before, the playing off again of of the of the Europeans depended basically on them trying to maintain some sort of neutrality. And so, at first, the Iroquois attempted to continue this policy of general neutrality with the usual soft prevarication and gentle encouragement, which had worked before. This time, however the war was bigger and the Americas were actually a major theater um, of the conflict and the position of the Iroquois was made difficult because of the strategic position and because increasing amounts of European influence had altered this their ability to remain aloof from the conflict a key factor in um, uh, in their ability to stay out of it uh, were the Mohawks um, but inability to stay out of it, I should say, was the Mohawks. The eastern, most eastern branch of the Confederacy, who were split in sympathy between the branches of uh, Kanajahari, uh, who liked the British, and Kanawaha, uh, who were committed to the French. Um, the British Indian agent William Johnson, who is one of these guys who cared and was actually embedded with the tribe, learned how they did things, and was a good friend to them, actually. Um, uh, as well as unfortunately having to do the will of the king which means like dragging them into a war but uh, <laughs> uh he was uh, being deeply embedded with the canada kind of, mohawks the closest of britain's mohawk allies um he he even had a he had a mistress and effective wife as uh, who was a well-liked christian mohawk woman named molly Brown, um and uh, when it came to European wars, uh, like I say, he's, he's going to be the guy who's going to be talking to them and trying to convince them to to come and fight with their ally, King George. Um, but the, and the Iroquois never actively stopped individual warriors from going and fighting if they wanted to. Um, and this time was no different. And, um, in 1755, a pro-British um, chief, uh, and I'm saying chief, uh, using the word chief here, but that's kind of anachronistic because the, in Iroquois sort of in Iroquois uh, uh, language and uh, amongst the eastern tribes along the Ohio Valley down to Tennessee and stuff, they're referred to as, and I'm not quite sure how to pronounce this, but it's either like Sashem or sakem. Mm-hmm. Um, uh But the, that's the proper terminology for it. Uh, this guy, who's called um, Hendrik Tena um, took up the hatchet beside his Irish friend, um, and led a party of volunteers alongside Johnson's militia to attack the French at Crown Point. A brutal battle uh, took place on the shores of Lake George, in which the French were defeated, but Hendrick was killed. Now, importantly, here something to remember as we go on: uh, Mohawks fought on, but when the Kanwaga Kanaha, uh, uh, it's gone out of my head ah Kanawaha warriors <laughs> refused to uh, found out that the other Mohawks were with the british they refused to fight, and this is seen as as one of the reasons why the French lost the battle but um at this at this also at this fight interestingly enough as a guy we'll hear of later was molly Brown's thirteen year old son uh, Thion, uh Tayon Danaga, known as Joseph. Uh, This event, the Battle of Lake George, helped bring the Mohawks into the fight with the British and eventually the Confederacy would kind of be sort of pulled into the conflict by the Mohawks um, and fought alongside them. So, for instance, when when the French fought at Niagara, came under siege in 1759, 900 Iroquois were present, uh, Joseph amongst them. Um, and it also should be noted here that warfare along the Ohio, St. Lawrence and Hudson valleys was next to impossible without large concentrations of, of Indian allies. Uh, when the Marquis de Montcalm attacked Fort William Henry in 1757, he had over 2000 warriors from France's network of Indian allies. Um, this by the way, is the actual setting for the last of the Mohicans. Um, it should further be noticed that um, with the exception of the Mohawks, most tribes favoured, like I said, the, the trade-hungry French rather than the land-hungry British. Mm. And the, but when the French were defeated, it sort of looked as if the Iroquois had made the right call. You know, their the allies, the British, were now dominant across the north. But at the same time, uh, the peace between Britain and France did ignore the interests of the Iroquois, with the British content to keep Indian affairs. Out of inter- international diplomacy, thinking that such matters would be covered as it always had been at a colonial level. Um, however, this sort of ungrateful attitude made the British few friends, and had it not been for the influence of Johnson, uh, a great many dissatisfied warriors might have joined the great Indian uprising known as Pontiac's War, which occurred between 1763 and 1766. Um, as it was, the pro-French tribes and factions within the Iroquois, certainly amongst the Seneca, did join in that that very um, that that war, which was a very very scary time for the British in North America, because actually, it, for, for a moment, it looked as if they were going to lose an awful lot of territory. Um, but these 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 were these were to be these were to become the last of Britain's problems in North America as as the 1760s wore on.
1: Right. We've got to the bit um, that I really want to ask you, which is, we're talking about whether it's better or worse for the Iroquois to be, um, for the French or the British to win this um, and for them to be in league with. Arguably, to what extent did the American Revolution then end up destroying the Iroquois?
2: Well, the simple answer is that it did end up um, destroying the Iroquois the slightly more in-depth answer for the yeah. podcast um, <laughs> now follows. <laughs>
1: for the people that have been waiting for 45 minutes to get to the big question at the end, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. So, but well, I mean, interestingly, from 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 an Iroquois point of view, the, the American Revolution was an affair of British separatists versus the British government over taxes, which they didn't really understand, you know, what's the fuss, guys? I mean, you're all on the same side, really, aren't you? You're all just British, but, you know, the Iroquois had always at the same time noted that the attitude of the colonial government and settlers was somewhat different to that of emissaries directly sent from the crown. When the colonies officially revolted against the crown in 1776, um, which I'm using as, the, as the, like, the proper start date where they officially cut the ties and you know, go to war and stuff, and he felt that the natural course for the League would be to uh, return to neutrality, to be honest, Uh, yet others saw the danger for the Iroquois should the rebels win because the rebels i.e people living in the colonies were known to be rather keen on snatching up land whereas the British government there was a slight distinction because they were more interested in uh, allies and trade and stuff like that and just one of the many one of the many sort of disconnects between colony and and crown that actually led to this war was the fact that the the colonies wanted to press into the Ohio um, and the British government were a little nervous about that because they knew that was mostly owned by, um, by various uh, American Indian nations. So that's actually a whole different uh, uh, topic of, of why the revolution started and, and stuff like that. But moving on with the Iroquois... Um, so there the, 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 the were the ouais factions within the Iroquois that thought that, you know, mostly the Mohawks and stuff like that, who 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 said, well, we, you know, we're friends with the British. If they need us, we should help them. Um, because, you know, these, these colonists are just aren't, aren't trustworthy at all. And we can do a better deal with the crown than we can with, say, Virginia or New York or something like that. And the biggest surprise actually came when, when, when it turned out that the Onida and Tuscarora nations of the confederacy were actually in sympathy with the separatists because they had been under the influence of some rather, rather, um, rather charismatic colonial missionaries who had made a pretty effective inroads, inroads into, um, into those two nations. Therefore, you know, there's, there's already, um, the threat of the league being split, and therefore actually that allows the the neutral party, mostly centred around a, a faction uh, of Seneca uh, uh, sach- sachems um, like uh, Old Smoke and and war chiefs like a guy called Cornplanter, to to kind of keep them out of the early part of the war. And uh, I mean, as uh, as uh, Cornplanter told the council. Uh, war is war, death is death, and and fight is a hard and and, a, and a, a fight is a hard business. So let's let's not get into this too quickly, guys. The league told the U.S. Con- Congress at Oswego in 1775 that they would not take up the hatchet against anybody. Old Smoke went so far as to personally go to dissuade warriors already joining combat groups along the New York and Pennsylvania frontier, but ties to the British. We still quite strong, um, and obviously as an example, uh, we need only go back to our friend Joseph Brandt, who was the thirteen year old warrior at Lake George, son of Molly Brandt, uh, and obviously a sort of stepson to William Johnson. He was was like really really had therefore had really really strong connections to the Johnson family. And Joseph even traveled to London in 1776 to help William's son Guy get the appointment of Commissioner of Indian Affairs, where he had his portrait painted and he, um, he surprised people and indeed disappointed them for not being savage enough. But uh, he was quite a genteel guy. Uh, but while he was away, the New York legislature of the rebel government the targeted Johnson's holdings and arrested the family then still in the state. Now the Johnsons are pretty much considered sort of de facto members of the Confederacy, or at least under their protection. And it was deemed, this was, this strike was deemed a strike against the Iroquois and uh, was thought saw as a contravention of the treaty that they had kind of signed in 1775. It was an insult. It was a slap in the face to the Iroquois that this had happened because Johnson's Johnson's house was pretty much on their lands as well. So this is, this was this was a big breaking point now the league's political divisions became very plain now with the seneca cayuga mohawk and onondaga nations siding directly with the british but the um the Onida and the tuscarora sided with the separatists uh, in 1777 the four pro crown nations took up the hatchet in support of their allies and tragically the other two um provided warriors to the rebels this despite the fact that congress had saw the policy of the british recruiting warriors of indian indigenous nations as an essential war crime and it is even cited in the declaration of independence as one of the tyrannical aspects of british rule they probably should have seen some writing on the wall there but uh, unfortunately they, it seemed like a good idea at the time still there was some hope that the opposing nations would act as the Mohawks had at Lake George in, in, in 1755, when the pro-French um, pro had refused to participate against their brothers. But even more tragically, during St. Legu's expedition, which was part of Burgoyne's 1777 Saratoga campaign, the warriors of the Oneida nation actually fired upon their Confederates at the Battle of Oriskany. In, and this symbolically brought an end to the Gunna-Wida's centuries-old law, um, as fellow Iroquois league members uh, shot and killed each other um, for another guy's war. Um, Brant and his Johnson kin teamed up with the Butler clan, which was a f- very famous Tory loyalist clan uh, family, and their war bands of rangers and warriors terrorized the northern frontier between 1777 and 1778. And George Washington ordered General Sullivan to totally destroy as many towns as possible in the Iroquois heartlands and to likewise take as many prisoners as possible of any age and sex. With only a small force of Tory allies, the Iroquois were unable to prevent Sullivan's column from doing just that. Even the non-interventionists like old smoke and corn planter now saw the writing on the wall. They fought courageously alongside Brant's rival red jacket but in vain to save their homes. Um, the mass destruction uh, Sullivan caused along the southern shores of the Great Lakes effectively smashed the power of the Confederacy as a political entity forever, driving the majority of the survivors into Canada, who, deprived of shelter and food, would have a hard time surviving the winter. Um, Brant and other war leaders uh, continued to fight thereafter, and they literally brought fire and destruction down the settlements of, of the Oneida. Just further deepening the, the, the now the wounds within the Confederacy itself. And it's almost like a resumption of the old morning wars before the League United. Um, Brandt actually became one of the most feared and reviled figures of the war because of his actions on the frontier. Um, he's right up there with creations of patriot propaganda like Banner Tarleton as a monstrous savage. Incidentally, since the 1750s. George Washington had been known to the Iroquois by the name of Townburner, So, you know, that goes both ways. Um, but when the war ended, Brant and the Butlers and the Johnsons had laid waste to over 50,000 miles of colonial land between the Ohio and Mohawk rivers. But it wasn't enough. The British made peace, 1783, uh, I believe, and the league stayed split as the result of a civil war within a civil war.
0: Zach just looks disgusted. (laughs) Yeah. if there's People know by now, if they've listened to enough of Sharpshooters, there's one thing that I can't despise enough. (laughs) It's hypocrisy. And so if you really want to class the the British drawing on the Iroquois as a war crime, fine. Build your argument for that. But uh, don't then go and conduct your own war crime against those people in the process. The British aren't angels by any means at any point in the history, but that's basically a genocide right at the start of the American story.
2: Yes, Um, it's very controversial to call it that because it's George Washington and you'll get a lot of hate for that, but it is essentially yes, yes, it is. (laughs) Although we did the worst
1: president and someone did wash, Beth did Washington for a laugh, and actually did not draw as much ire from the Americans in the room as you thought she might, because they acknowledged that he had some dickish qualities.
2: <laughs> well, this was definitely one of them.
1: Uh, <laughs> so what, what becomes of the Iroquois descendants? Where are they railroaded to and where are they now?
2: Uh, the schism in, uh, in the Iroquois would last a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the British government in London didn't make a great effort to compensate them. Uh, even though they had lost everything in the war with the United States, although they did allow them to settle in Canada, which is where they they ferried a lot of loyalists uh, after the war. Uh, even, I mean, even the Oni. It has to be said that even that the Onida and Tuscarora did come to sort of regret their decision as time went on, because it became increasingly obvious that the United States was really not interested in treating them as allies. Um, they just wanted the land, um, and. Two leagues, therefore, kind of arose and were set up one, uh, sort of two Lesser Onondagas were created as a result of this. So the royal government in Canada was relied on to provide for the Iroquois, basically. Um, and in 1784, the Haldimand Proclamation gave a, a large grant of land to the surviving members of the league that had uh, fought for the British. Brandt, uh, our boy Joseph, tried to reform a nucleus of the dispossessed league around his base at Grand River, uh, which was in this territory, founding a community of around 1,800 people in uh, 1785, which is now called Brantford in his honor, it's in Ontario. Um, he was a vital hinge for the Iroquois uh, uh, in terms of their exist- like for continuing existence. It was something that they could sort of rely on as a figure. And a significant player, therefore, as a, their, for their survival as a nation. Um, in 1802, he he moved. He he sort of. I think he built an estate. I think uh, uh, on late Ontario. Um, he was something of a modernist, and he lived the rest of his life actually in more or less European style, and spent a lot of time trying to produce a prayer book in the Mohawk language and learn Greek. Um, and although he would later stir critics for allowing white settlers to occupy portions of his of his land, he did not try and look out for his nation until he died in 1807. Um, another civil um, and, and war leader who did a lot of work uh, to um, to try and try and rectify the situation post war was Red Jacket, who I mentioned earlier. He was a great state, statesman of the Seneca, although in later in his life stricken by alcoholism and the grief of uh, having his children succumb to disease, he was, uh, however, instrumental in negotiations with the United States. Uh, that, that, when the war ended, um, the success of the American Revolution, however, had broken, as we've said, the Great League, um, and for the Haudenosaunee, uh, you know, as they call themselves. Uh, left in the USA, things didn't pan out as they had hoped. The fertile land that their women had cultivated for centuries, and I should also point out, a big part of Iroquois culture here is that the men do the hunting and the fighting, the women make a lot of the political decisions and farm the land. This, this, this This was coveted by the Americans, this land. The Treaty of Stanwix, 1784, and uh, Kadayuga, uh, can Kana, sorry, Canada, Canadaga in 1794, deprived the Seneca of, uh, of much of their land in western New York and Pennsylvania. Um, many Onidas, uh, who were the biggest supporters of the Americans, moved to live, uh, with the, with the Onondaga in Canada, uh, eventually. Uh, some stayed, some Onidas stayed in New York until the 1830s, until they were moved all well, we moved on to Wisconsin when the US government's Indian policy removed as many Indians as possible, oh as West as possible. <laughs> um,
1: put them in places where they could just achieve yeah yeah
2: any that were left behind naturally then picked up and and left for Ontario in the 1840s just um, that we
1: all have our head in our hands at this yeah. point
2: <laughs> Uh, when the majority of old Iroquois land was was sold off under pressure from the government of New York. Uh, The Tuscarora were settled in a reservation near Niagara. Seneca and Cayuga kind of grimly held on to the diminishing land in New York with uh, many warriors becoming farmers. Um, And uh, as as private companies continued to buy up their holdings, oddly enough, uh, some salvation came in the form of some... uh, some missionaries uh, and, uh, of, uh, of Quaker persuasion, uh, uh, along with the missionary Asher Wright, managed to keep the Allegheny and uh, Kataraugus uh, reservations from being gobbled up by fraudulent, fraudulent businessmen. Um, and many also sheared off to go to Oklahoma. Uh, and, uh, the doggedly, as we said, the doggedly loyalist Mohawks ended up in Canada with Brant uh, and escaped much of the chiseling as, as a result, but it's, it's not good to, by any stretch of, the, of, of description. Um, the Confederacy itself is split by faction and distance across half the country uh, and they're packaged in, in dwindling reservations. The future, you know, it's looking pretty dim, but actually the story of the Iroquois does go on. Um. No, not surprisingly, they, they no longer form a formidable military force. Uh, though many warriors did participate in this in some way during the War of eighteen twelve, uh, except for the Catholic Iroquois, who sided with the French, like way back in the day, and, and became neutral. But uh, again, in disappointingly uh, typical fashion, they then suffer from both sides because they didn't fight. The Haudenosaunee, uh, the Iroquois. Were dissuaded from um, joining the uh, but fellow nations in struggles against the U.S. in the 1780s, 1790s. Um, uh, but uh, the league basically remained split between Canada and America. Uh, with the branches spread various places due to the ongoing appropriation of indigenous land by the United States in the 19th century. The survival of the tribe to this day is a remarkable story in itself of like resilience. (laughs) Um, But it still has various centers uh, in in the United States and Canada. Um, Interestingly enough, uh, I'll give you two examples of of some things that happened afterwards, which are quite interesting. Um, uh, so when when Khartoum came under siege uh, by the Martis forces uh, in the 1880s, I believe it was, um, the the golden relief column needed experienced boatmen to get them down the Nile, and they turned to um, the Canadians and uh, a hundred or so Iroquois boatmen. Therefore, sailed to Egypt to help.
0: Help, ah. help
2: convey the British army to Khartoum.
1: With my man.
2: That's the one. <laughs> and and also uh, there is also the, there's also the great figure of uh, of a very notable guy, who uh, who came to prominence in the 1860s, and his name was Eli Parker of the Seneca, who was Ulysses S. Grant's military secretary during the Civil War. It was Parker who wrote out the terms of Robert E. Lee's surrender at Appomattox in April, 1865, ending the, effectively ending the US civil war. And he became commissioner of Indian affairs in 1869. On the day of of Lee's surrender, um, the Confederate general was somewhat perturbed by the dark skinned man in the blue coat, but relaxed somewhat when he discovered that Parker was a native American. Parker later told the story to anybody who would hear it a little like this, which were, um, quote, Lee extended his hand and said, I am glad to see one real American here. I shook his hand and said, we are all Americans. Because you see, through it all, the heart of the story of the Iroquois is, is one rooted in unity.
1: Gosh, well done! I love that you always bring a really challenging subject with uh, impossible pronunciation and just do it anyway, rather than going for the easy. Yeah, let me—I just do some Tudor stuff. Let's do. <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I love your uh, complete determination to be as awkward as possible because history Hack benefits every time. Thank you so
2: much. Oh, always a pleasure. Absolutely always a pleasure to come back and talk about these things. You'll probably never hear me talking about Tudors, but... <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, through the Tudors. Making hand gestures. There's, we have enough Tudors. We have enough people talking about the Tudors. No, as always, it's great to learn about different people and different areas and different ethnicities and races with you. Thank you so much.
2: Absolute pleasure, as I said. Uh, I will be. I'm sure I'll be back with... The other random stuff.
1: <laughs> oh so my, I've scheduled you in twice more already.
2: <laughs> yeah, although we're back in Europe next, I think. We're doing some swashbuckling.
1: We are because you got into a Twitter thing and <laughs> now you want to talk about Duma and the is
2: I one. do, I do. Yeah. It's one of my soft spots. Brilliant. So we're going to be massacring some French pronunciation. We all know how, lo- how the French love that.
1: You can help us at History Hack by joining us via Patreon. It takes quite a lot of effort and a lot of work on quite a big team now to keep us going. And so if you could donate as little as £3 a month, it would be massively appreciated by all of us. There's different levels because Princess Marcus has set it all up with uh, varying rewards and things. So do have a look, do join us. There's uh, an exclusive Facebook group as well and you can be part of all of
0: it. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags and so much more